Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So we're starting to draw down on the book of 1 Thessalonians. And uh, this morning we come to kind of a new emphasis uh, in the book, at least from what Paul has been developing. Remember all the way back in chapter 4 and verse 1, Paul emphasized that uh, the church should strive to live a life that pleases God. Uh, That would involve our sanctification in many areas. He related it to being watchful, sober, and armored as we wait for Christ's second coming. And then he dealt with some of our relationships with one another. We please God as we live in relationships that honor God. And some of the relationships He exhorted us to in pleasing God would be that we live in peace with one another, that we have patience with one another, that we minister to the needs of the saints, and that we don't return evil for evil, but we seek what is good for all people. So all of these are different ways that we live a life that pleases God. And now starting in verse 16 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul now turns his gaze upon how we live a life that pleases God in terms of our relationship with God. And so in verse 16, uh, really down through verse 22, he is stating how we please God in terms of our relationship with God Himself. So I'll begin reading in verse 16 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. These uh, marvelous words given to us by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So he exhorts Northwest Bible Church to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks for this is God's will for you In Christ Jesus. Now actually there are seven imperatives that are going to follow in this passage. Where the Apostle Paul is giving us in kind of a staccato, rapid fire succession. These little short little bullets if you will. That he's exhorting the church into their relationship with God. How they can live a life that pleases God as they walk with God. We're only going to look at the first three in verses 16 through 18 this morning, but there's actually seven of these little precise, pithy little commands and exhortations in this passage, and we'll look at the rest of them, uh, Lord willing, next time. But as we begin by looking at verse 16, the Apostle Paul just simply says, Rejoice always. Now, he doesn't give a lot of explanation because these are things he has already taught them. So he basically is just reminding them of their duties to God and their walk with God. And the very first one is really to rejoice always. Now, when we begin to examine this, and of course, this is is one of the virtues of the Christian life. But we're rejoicing, obviously, because of our relationship with God And we'll see that more in just a minute. But when he says rejoice always, what does he mean by that? What does he mean by rejoicing? What what is Christian joy? Well, J.I. Packer said that joy is the happiness of the heart linked with good feelings. Just kind of very generic definition of joy. It's the happiness of the heart linked with good feelings. That's not the same thing as an emotional high It's not the same thing as just feelings that are very elevated. It's not just being jovial or a carefree attitude towards life. It's it's much deeper than that. It's quite different from the joy that the world has. And that kind of joy is mainly expressed when circumstances are going well. Then the worldly joy can can be had. But Christian joy is deeper and richer because it doesn't depend upon how well things are going. We can have joy when things are going well, but we can also have joy which can blossom even in the deserts of intense 
trials. The Thessalonians were good examples of this. Remember all the way back in chapter 1, verse 6, Paul said to them, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now that's Christian joy. That's a joy that you can have when you're going through tribulation, when you're going through trials, when things are not the way you want them to be or prefer them to be, but you can still have joy. So that our joy is a joy that we can possess regardless of our external circumstances. So Christian joy is really far more than just a feeling. Christian joy is really a state of mind. It's a habit of the heart that sees the entirety of our lives from God's perspective. It evaluates our circumstances in light of His good and sovereign will. It believes in His promises rather than in the lies of the world around us. And it believes those promises in spite of the lies we tell ourselves from our own corrupt nature. No, we're living in the presence of God in light of His promises. We're living really a God-centered life. And that's where joy really is rooted in. Of course, the full harvest of our joy will come when Christ comes back. But now the Lord would have us, and Paul exhorts us, to live with joy. And we can have the first fruits of that eschatological joy even now, even this very day. So what are some of the causes of joy? Well, obviously joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit causes joy. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, on and on. So ultimately it's the Holy Spirit that gives us this joy. It's not something we can just manufacture. It's a God-given gift and virtue. But the Spirit imparts His joy to us through one very important means. And that is getting His truth into our minds. This is one of the foundations for having joy. It's when we get God's truth into our thought life. Then we can have joy. Notice what Jesus said in John 15 to His disciples in verse 11. These things I have spoken to you. So now He's referencing all of His teaching, all of His words that He's been communicating to them. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. So joy comes from hearing the Word of Christ, believing it, and getting it into our minds. And that's what enables us to have joy when we hear and believe and appropriate the things that He speaks to us. His Word. His truth. So these are Gospel truths that can give us great joy. Now, when Paul wrote his letter to the Philippians, he kind of expanded this a little bit when he said, Rejoice in the Lord always. And when he says rejoice in the Lord always, that's telling us again that our joy is rooted in the Lord. It's our relationship with the Lord that gives us joy. Christ is the very fountainhead of our joy. Both in His person and in His work for us, He is the ultimate source of our joy. So if we are to obey Paul's command in Thessalonians to rejoice always, we need to get truth about Christ into our minds and keep it there and meditate on it and live in the light of it. We need to remember things like God's love for us through His Son Jesus because He sent His only begotten Son to come down from heaven to take on a human nature to live a totally righteous and sinless life so that He could die on the cross and He could take all of the sins of His people and lay them on His Son and crush His Son and punish His Son 
so that He would endure the full penalty for all of our sins. I mean, that is joyful when we think about that. My sins have been forgiven. That is an incredible source of joy, but it's all rooted in the Lord. We rejoice in what Christ has done on the cross to save us from our sins. So no matter what the world does to me or you, no matter what the world takes from me or takes from you, you can still have joy as you remember what God has taken from you, which is your sin. He's taken that away. And when we rejoice in the Lord, that's a joy you can always have. And no one can take away that. We can allow it to be taken away. But uh, it is there for all of us all the time. When we remember that we've been forgiven of all of our sins, that we're not destined for the wrath, but for glory, that we've been imputed with His own perfect righteousness, and now we're, we're clothed with the righteousness of Christ, these things should give us joy. That Christ will never leave us or forsake us. That He's now in heaven interceding for us at this very moment for all of His children. That He's our great shepherd. That He will always lead us and guide us through life until He leads us into the Beulah lands above. That should give us joy. We should have joy in God's sovereignty. That everything is under His control. And He's promised that He works all things together for good to those who love Him to those who are called according to His purpose. The sovereignty of God is one of the great joy givers of the Christian life. We can have joy in the fact that Christ will one day return and that we'll enter into His presence and experience the fullness of that joy and pleasures forever. That every trial now and every depressing thought now will vanish forever. All of your troubles, all of your trials are temporary. They do not last forever. Joy will last forever in the presence of Christ. And when we discipline our minds to live in these joy-giving truths, the Word of Christ, then we can put on joy and put off gloom. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. That should give us great joy. And again, notice that you can have this joy even when you're going through very difficult seasons of life. Peter wrote to a number of churches who were also being distressed and going through various trials, he mentioned. But he also says that you love Him and though you do not see Him now but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. We read that earlier. So here are believers that were going through trials and troubles in life, but they were greatly rejoicing and they had a joy so deep, so rich, it was inexpressible. Do we have that kind of joy? Oftentimes we don't. But Paul exhorts us to rejoice always. This is a joy that we can have all the time if our mind is centered on Christ, who He is and what He's done for us. But again, the reality is, is that joy is not a permanent blessing and it can be lost like a tire with a nail stuck in it, that slow leak until the, the tire just compresses all the way down and becomes flat. We can lose our joy. And what causes us to lose our joy? Well, simply when we take our eyes off of Christ. It's really pretty much that simple. When we take our eyes off of Christ, when we put them on all the troubles and all the bad things and all the discouraging things in our life and we fixate on them and we bring all that stuff, we shovel all of that burden into our mind and we're dwelling on it, we're focused on it, we're going to lose our joy. It's like those nails stuck in the tire and all the joys are going to leak out. If we're not pumping in more, then eventually it goes flat and we experience the bumpy ride of that kind of a Christian life. The loss of joy, sadly, is something that we all have to fight against. 
when we become too preoccupied with what's going on in the world. I mean, I think we need to be certainly aware we have responsibilities to pray and be involved and to try to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. But the world is a very depressing place. And if we're always bringing in all that stuff into our heart and minds, we're going to lose our joy. We focus on the chaos. We focus on all the injustice. We focus on the disappointments, the sadness around us, and we can easily become discontented. We can start wearing grudges and bearing grudges and feeling cheated or feeling robbed or whatever it may be. And when we take our eyes off of Christ and off the salvation and the blessings that we have in Christ, and we're focusing upon all of our failures and all of our losses and all of our crosses and all of our bad circumstances, all the wrongs that people have done to us, all the tragedies, all the hardships, all the pains, all the trials, and if that's where my mind is all the time, then we've given a beachhead for the enemy to come in and steal away our joy. It's kind of like the disciples in the boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, battered by the winds and the waves. Remember the story well? Jesus has been up on the mountain praying. He comes down. He decides He's going to walk on water to the other side. So He starts walking across the water. He's close enough to the disciples in the boat. They seem they're scared to death. They think it's a ghost. It's some kind of a phantom. And Jesus identifies Himself. And what does Peter say? Lord, if it's You, command me to come to You on the water. And Jesus said, come. And Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water toward Jesus. I bet his heart was overflowing with joy. Can you believe it? I'm walking on water. And he started looking at the waves and the, and the wind. And I think before he probably, this is just my, my thinking, he probably looked over his shoulder and looked at the other guys in the boat saying, hey guys, look at me. Look at what I'm doing. I'm walking on water. And I think his heart was probably exhilarated by the miracle of the grace that he was experiencing. But then he took his eyes off the Lord and put them on his problems. He put them on the threatening circumstances. And then what happened? He started to sink. Now at that moment, he's probably thinking to himself, you stupid imbecile, what were you thinking? You're going to get out and walk on the water. But God had enabled him to triumph over that, to defy gravity. But now his eyes are off the Lord and it's on his troubles and his trials. And he begins to sink. And then comes the shortest prayer in the Bible, I think, when he cried out, Lord, save me. And he turned back to the Lord and the Lord grabbed him and picked him up. They got in the boat. And then the boat just speedily, maybe miraculously, found itself in, at the bank. But it's when we become self-focused that we lose our joy. And whenever our eyes are off of Christ and off of who He is and what He's done for us, then get ready for the deep plunge. Because it's going to come. We're going to lose our joy. Because we're always fixating on all the negatives of our life. So the loss of joy is basically just taking our eyes off the Lord. And how about the, the duration of joy? Well, Paul has told them rejoice. You know, not just on Sunday mornings. Not just ever here and there, but rejoice always. This is really the, the command, the exhortation. Rejoice always. You think, well, that's kind of unrealistic, isn't it? Really? To rejoice always? But that's kind of what he's saying. Although the word always, of course, has to be understood in, in a certain sense. Just like praying without ceasing. You can't pray just 24-7 every second of the day. But it's the idea of live in this atmosphere of joy. Rejoice always. Christ can give us such grace that we can have joy in all experiences of life. This joy can be a deep current that runs deeper than our sinking spells in life. 
You see, the reason for that is because joy is one of the hallmarks of the Christian life. Paul said in Romans 14, verse 17, that the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's the kingdom of God. That's the present kingdom of God, the spiritual kingdom. One of the main qualities of that is that we have joy. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And the truths that Jesus taught us are designed to give us joy even in the harshest and most challenging seasons of life. Rejoice always. He doesn't just say rejoice when you know everything's going well. Rejoice always. Well, how can that be? Well, this is really emphasized a number of times in Scripture. Remember what Paul had written to the church at Rome in chapter 5, verse 3, when he says, and not only this, but we also exult. That is, we rejoice. Exulting is a form of rejoicing. We exult in our tribulation. Really? How can you do that? How can you rejoice when you're going through all kinds of tribulations in your life? Well, because you look beyond the trial and you see what God is doing through the trial. So he says, knowing, got to get this in your mind, you got to bring it into your thought life, bring those truths and think about them, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, perseverance brings about proven character, and proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint because the Holy Spirit is poured out in our hearts. So when you realize that God is sovereignly using that tribulation to bring about perseverance, proven character, and hope, which does not disappoint, then you can thank God for the tribulation. You can rejoice in it. Not because we're masochists and we just love the pain. Oh God, give me more pain. I love it. No, it's that God is using that pain and using that sorrow and that suffering to ultimately make us more like Christ. And if you believe that, because that's what the Word of God says, then you can find yourself with a measure of joy even in the the midst of great deep sorrow. Paul wrote to the Corinthians and described himself as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. You can have sorrow and joy at the same time. You can actually experience both. So that our tribulations do not have to sink your joy or steal away your joy. James said the same thing. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. What? Joy in the midst of trials? Yes, when you look at the end result of what God is doing through those trials. Knowing, again, you've got to get this truth in your mind. You've got to think about it. If you forget it, you're going to lose your joy. Think about what God is doing knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Very similar to Romans 5. So you see, you focus, you remember, you think about the end of what God is doing through your trials. And therefore, you can have joy in the means that's going to make you closer to Christ and more like Christ. You can have joy in how God is bringing the hammer and the chisel to mold us more into the image of Christ. It's kind of countercultural, but it's biblical. And this is a way to sustain joy when you get your eyes off the trials and look beyond to the ultimate result. And that's where we can get our joy. I love... Uh, this uh, Habakkuk in chapter 3, how he described the joy that he had, even though he was living in very, very depressing circumstances. Notice what he says. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, and though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food. 
though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls. In other words, economically, we have been devastated. We have no food. We have no wealth. We have, we have nothing to encourage us by. Everything of, that's good has been taken away. There's none of that. So you would think, well, golly, is he depressed? He says in verse 18, Yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. For the Lord God is my strength. And He has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on my high places. So he trusts that God is going to save him through that. And he's trusting in God. He's finding his joy in the God of my salvation the spiritual blessings that he has, even though the material blessings, there aren't any. His spiritual blessings are prized more than all the physical so that he could have exulting and rejoicing in God in the midst of a very depressing uh, circumstance of life. So what do we need to do to rejoice always? Well, we've got to learn to choose to believe by God's grace. Choose to believe, to rest in, and to delight in who Christ is and what He's done for us and is doing and will do for us. Rather than sink under the waters of anxiety and fears and troubles of life, we should find joy because joy is rooted in the mind that is fixed on Christ. Take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, Paul tells us. That's the key to joy. Our thoughts are just continually running wild. And Paul says, you take them captive. You take that unbelieving, you take that worry, that anxiety, that fear that's, that's just driving you insane and is just creating all this unrest within your soul. You run after that thought and you take it captive and you bring it back to obedience to Christ and His promises and His Word. And you conquer your discouragement with the joy of the Lord. Paul told the Philippians, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and anything worthy of praise, Dwell on these things. Think about that. And that's part of the means of rejoicing in the Lord always. One of the biggest things I think uh, that we need to learn in applying all of this is what Martin Lloyd-Jones talked about in one of his books on spiritual depression about the importance of biblical self-talk. Now this is not the positive thinking stuff. This is biblical Self-talk. Now this is what we see in Psalm 42 verse 5. So the psalmist is going through a depressing time in his life. He's discouraged. He's losing hope. And so he he engages in biblical self-talk to pull himself out of it by the grace of God and and the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice what he does. He says in verse 40, chapter 42, verse 5 of Psalms, Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him for the help of His presence. Now again, this is not the worldly positive thinking idea. This is sanctified biblical self-talk where you now take the the promises of God and the character of God and you preach it to yourself. This is what we need to do. We need to learn what He has learned. Now notice if you break this down, notice the interrogation. He interrogates Himself. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? In other words, when you realize that your thoughts are going south, and you don't have the joy of the Lord, but you're discouraged and you're, down, you're, you're downtrodden in your soul, you first need to stop and begin to interrogate yourself and ask yourself, why in the world are you in despair? Why are you cast down within me? So you first have to alert yourself to the fact that you're really uh, living like an atheist 
You're not trusting in God. You've forgotten God. And so now you're just sinking under all this weight of discouragement. It's kind of like the story of uh, Catherine, Martin Luther's wife. And the story goes that Martin Luther was prone to depression in his, uh, in his life. And sometimes he would get so discouraged and so down that he would just mope around the house. And it was the story goes, I don't know if it's, if it's apocryphal or not, but that Catherine, his wife, would dress up in black and put a veil over her face and walk around the house and yell out, God is dead! God is dead! And Martin Luther would say, no, he's not. Well, then stop acting like it. <laughs> or something like that. But it's the idea that a lot of times we get, we get stuck in this, this down, depressing mindset because we've taken our eyes off the Lord. And the first thing is to say, why? Why are you so discouraged? You have so many blessings in Christ. You have so many good things in your life. Why are you so depressed? Why are you in despair? Why are you disturbed? So he first begins by interrogating himself. This is all that self-talk. Takes himself by the scruff of the neck. Why are you in despair? And then he begins to exhort himself. This is where he now begins to preach to himself. And all of this is really in light of the promises and the character of God. Hope in God. Alan, why are you so depressed? Hope in God. And you preach it to yourself. You exhort yourself. You admonish yourself. You speak truth to yourself. Hope in God. So he's exhorting himself, rebuking himself really in many ways to encourage himself in the Lord. Hope in God. Your God is sovereign. Your God is in control. God, your God has promised He's going to work all things together for good in your life. Put your hope in God. Don't let your circumstances steal away your hope and your joy. Put your hope in the Lord. And then, the final part of his self-talk is that he expresses his confident hope in the presence of God. And this is based on God's promises. For I shall again praise Him for the help of His presence. I will again, now that I am hoping in God, I will praise Him for the help of His presence. Lord, You have not left me. Lord, You are with me. You've promised that You're going to get me through this. And that's where my hope is. It's in You and it's in Your Word. So again, I will praise Him for the help of His presence. I know He's going to come in His good timing and bail me out of this. And I think while he's probably remembering one of the promises or one of the confidence of uh, the faith of David back in Psalm 23, verse 4, when he said, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For Thou art with me. Thy rod and Thy staff, they comfort me. You're with me, God. You're with me. That's Your promise. I believe it. You're with me. And I think the, the psalmist, he has interrogated himself. He has exhorted himself. And now he's expressing in faith the confident hope and he praises God for the help of His presence that God has promised in His Word to all of His children. Yea, though it's through the valley of the shadow of death you must walk. God says He'll never leave you. He is with you. He'll never depart from you. And His rod will strengthen you. Let that encourage your faith. See, we don't have to be prisoners of our past. If we've been injured in the past, we can forgive. We can be transformed. We don't have to be prisoners of our present. God can change that. Or of our dreaded future. That's in God's hands. But though the joy that will one day be ours in fullest measure is something that the Lord would have us taste and enjoy the sweetness of it now. 
We need the joy of the Lord. As Nehemiah said, the joy of the Lord is your strength. So it's worth fighting the fight of faith to live in that joy as we bring the truth about Christ and who He is and what He's done for us and we dwell on those things. And that's how we plug up those nails that are in our tire. And that's how we keep pumping in that air that even though other things may, we may be leaking out joy over here and there, there's enough of Christ-centered thinking and God-centered focus that that joy is still being brought back into our soul. And when we do that, then we can rejoice always. Well, the second little command that Paul gives, I'm going to have to be quick with these, is to pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Again, you think, my goodness, it's impossible. The word prayer, we'll start there, is a broad word for prayer. It can encompass all different kinds of prayer. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. It's a very general word for prayer. But what he emphasizes here, of course, is unceasing prayer. Pray without ceasing. This particular word, without ceasing, occurs four times in Paul's writings. He's the only one that uses it. And the idea again is that our prayer life, again, it really is impossible to always be praying all the time. I mean, our mind has to focus on our work and other things that we're doing. But again, the idea is is living in an atmosphere of prayer. Living Coram Deo, as uh, Sproul likes to to say in in his magazine, Table Talk. Coram Deo. That is living before the face of God. Living in the presence of God. And that should be the atmosphere. And when we're doing that, we're going to be finding that we're, we're praying. Maybe not you know, just a constant prayer all the time, but it'll be like a hacking cough or something that we do frequently throughout the day. Otherwise, it, it would be impossible. But the idea is to live in that atmosphere. Be praying all the time. Pray without ceasing. It should be a regular habit of prayer that is being communicated. Don't neglect it. Pray. And it's probably an area of our Christian lives where many of us struggle the most. And I'll put my name on that list. I mean, I, I, I pray. I'm always convicted that I need to be praying more than I pray. And this is a good uh, exhortation to all of us. Why, why is prayer so important? Well, for I'll just mention two quick reasons. The first reason is that it's the means by which God accomplishes His will in this earth. Prayer is a vital part of God's overall will for His people because God answers prayer. That's why we need to pray. God wants us to pray, but He answers our prayers and He actually changes things. Our prayers don't change God but our prayers are the means by which God changes us. And God changes other people. And God changes circumstances. So prayer is very important because it's a means that He has ordained by which He accomplishes His good and holy will. And even though God has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass, prayer is still a vital means by which He accomplishes His will. We don't know what His will is oftentimes, so we pray. And then God answers our prayers as He sees fit and brings it to pass. Christ taught many times on the importance of prayer. How we should persevere in it. How we should believe that God gives good things to His children when we ask Him. And He even gave us that model prayer, the Lord's Prayer, maybe better called the Disciples' Prayer, our our Father who art in heaven. That's how important prayer is he actually gives us a prayer as a model to guide us in our prayer life it's a wonderful prayer to to use as a as a guide when we pray and of course christ himself was committed to prayer all of his life he would spend whole nights in prayer 
to give us an example that even the Son of God valued prayer and fellowship and communion with His Father just to teach us how important it is for us to do the same. How vital it is. So really the first reason is that God answers prayers. It's a part of His ordained will in accomplishing His purpose. And the second reason is that we need to pray because we're so utterly dependent upon God for everything. Prayer communicates to God that we know how helpless we really are. How utterly dependent we are upon God for not only our daily bread, but for the grace that we need every day to walk with Him. We are really empty buckets in need of God's filling. When we pray, we're basically saying to God, God, I need You. I cannot do this. I need You to intervene. I need You to to work in hearts to change things. Lord, I can't do it. I'm insufficient in myself. And when we pray, in effect, we're saying, Lord, I can't, but You can. And I think any father delights when his little child runs up to him with his hands out or he comes up and says, you know, Daddy or Mommy, can you, can you help me? I can't do this. And there's a sense that when we pray, we're coming as, as little children to our Father acknowledging that we need Him. And we need Him far more than we know that we need Him. We need Him for everything. And in light of that, it's very appropriate to pray without ceasing. And may God cause the spirit of adoption who dwells in our hearts by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. May the Father stir up the graces of that spirit of adoption, the Holy Spirit, to move us to pray without ceasing. And to not neglect the spiritual discipline, but to commit ourselves to it. May God help us in that area as well. And then finally, real quickly, he says, In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. That we're to be thankful. We're to be thankful for the good things in our lives and also be thankful for the things that aren't so good. We should be thankful for all the good things because they all come from God. Our wealth, our health, whatever it might be, to whatever degree we have it, that comes from God. It's not something that we did. I mean, we we use our minds, we use our bodies to accomplish these goals. But God gave us that strength. He gave us that mind to, to work with. So ultimately, it all comes from Him. And that's what James acknowledges in James 1. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights. Every good thing. Every perfect gift. That's from God. God is the one who's given that to us. And so we give Him thanks. A thankful heart acknowledges God's sovereignty and goodness in all areas of our life. Even when we're going through times of struggles, we don't understand it. God has a plan. God has a good purpose. So we choose to believe that and we give Him thanks. Acknowledging that He's sovereign in control and that His goodness is always towards His children. A thankful heart is a joyful heart. A thankful heart is a praying heart. A thankful heart is a God-glorifying heart. And a thankful heart is a peaceful heart. Because if you're giving thanks to God, if you're trusting Him and giving Him thanks, God's peace is going to flow in your heart. That's why Paul could tell the Philippians, be anxious for nothing, but in everything through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which far surpasses all comprehension, will guard your heart and your soul and your mind in Christ Jesus. See, it's when we're giving thanks to God for those circumstances that are stressing us out. 
when we give thanks to God for those troubles in our life, we're acknowledging His sovereignty and we're acknowledging He has a reason for it. And when we by faith thank Him for that, then His peace can can flow into our hearts. The anxiety, the worry begins to fade because His peace will rush in. Because I know my God has me in His hand. And all my struggles, all of my sorrows, all of my suffering, He's in control of it. And there's a purpose, a good purpose behind it all. So we should give thanks to God in everything, Paul says. Not just the good times, not just the good blessings, but even the thorns in the flesh. Paul learned to do that. Remember, 2 Corinthians. He had a thorn in the flesh. He prayed three times for God to remove it. God said, no, Paul, I'm going to leave it in there because I'm going to bless you by having that thorn in your flesh. And that blessing is going to be because I've given you so many incredible revelations and I've, I've revealed so many of my truths to you, your mind is going to have a tendency to want to become puffed up with pride and become arrogant. So I'm giving you this thorn in your side to keep you humble. To keep you humble. And as a result of that, I think Paul stopped praying because he had the peace of God. He was content because he was trusting God, knowing that there was a good purpose even behind the thorn that God refused to take away from him. We really should learn to give thanks to God for everything, even our trials. If God is sovereign, and He is, if God has promised to bring good out of everything in your life, which He has, If God is infinitely good, which He is, and infinitely wise, which He is, then how can we not acknowledge Him and ultimately thank Him for our trials when He's promised He's going to work them for good? It takes faith, but it's a kind of faith that's focused on Christ, His character, and His promises. And all that He's done for us. And we can, in everything, Give thanks. Richard Phillips, um, who wrote a commentary on First Thessalonians, told a story about George Matheson, who was a Scottish preacher, who realized that one day he, had, though he had trusted God to help him manage his near blindness, which he had suffered since childhood, he had never thanked God for that. He had never thanked God for that dreadful affliction. And so the the Lord convicted him on it. And he prayed to God and he said, My God, I have never thanked you for my thorn. I have thanked you a thousand times for my roses, but never once for my thorn. So teach me the glory of my cross. Teach me the value of my pain. And show me that my tears have made my rainbows. Because you, O God, are in control. And I think in light of that, it's an encouragement for all of us to give thanks. Yes, to give thanks to God in everything. Because we know that this is a part of God's plan that He has destined us for our trials for a good purpose. The very last phrase here is the motive. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And I'm thinking that it really governs all three of these imperatives. To rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. All three of these are. Not just the giving thanks. But the rejoicing and the praying, all of that is God's will for His people. And notice again, the focal point to distill it down. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Because all of our blessings, all of life basically is funneled through, through what Christ has done for His people. So we need to always rejoice, always pray, always give thanks in everything.
Because we can in Christ. And this is God's will for us. The closer we walk with Christ, the more we love Christ, the better we live for Christ. And the more our thoughts are on the Lord and we remember His promises, we remember the blessings we have from Him, then the more we will have His joy, the more we will pray, the more we will have a thankful heart. And notice again the emphasis here of always, without ceasing, and everything. Do you hear the universalism? I mean, the, 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 the size of the expanse of these things. It's in all circumstances of life. The Christian life is to be lived quorum Deo in every area of our life, not just in some. Because God rules over all things. He's sovereign. He's in control. He's good. He's wise. His children, we should entrust in Him our souls, our lives, our joy, our thanksgiving in all areas of life. And that's, that's the result of living with, with Christ and His person and His character and His work and His promises in our mind. Thinking about those regularly. And it can't help produce more joy, more prayer, and more of a thankful heart. Even our losses and our crosses are a part of His good plan to bring good into our lives so that we should give Him thanks and praise and joy in everything. Because He rules over everything. And He's our Savior who loves us and His promise is good for each of us. So may the Lord encourage us in the areas where we fall short. May the Spirit of God help us as we bring the truth of Christ more into our minds to help dispel the gloom and bring in the joy and the thankfulness. Well, let's close in prayer. Our Father, we do thank You, Lord, that what seems impossible to us is possible with You. And so, Lord, we receive these exhortations into our heart. We may very well struggle with it because we oftentimes realize that we don't have that joy. We don't pray as we should. And we're not full of thankfulness as often as we should be. But Lord, we acknowledge our, our sin. We acknowledge our element of unbelief. And we acknowledge, Lord, that too often times we allow other things to dominate our thinking so that Christ and His blessing and His glory and His work for us is, is way out in the pasture. And so Lord, we pray that the Spirit of God would help us to reflect more on Christ, to reflect on His promises, the goodness, the blessings, the eternal joy that we have waiting for us. And may that help fill us with the Spirit of Christ so that we might rejoice always Pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.